This Sunday, a stunning collapse. The second largest bank failure in U.S. history rattles the tech world and raises fears the panic could spread. When banks experience financial losses, it is and should be a matter of concern. Why did the government have to take it over so quickly? And are other banks at risk? I'll ask Sheila Baer, the former chair of the FDIC during the last banking crisis. Plus, legal troubles. Donald Trump faces potential criminal charges in New York, where he's been invited to testify before the grand jury this week. Our country has become the investigation capital of the world. While his biggest challenger visits Iowa for the first time. We will never, ever surrender to the woke mob. Will Republican primary voters even care if Trump is indicted? And the art of deception. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy hands over January 6th footage to Tucker Carlson, who uses it to claim the insurrection was mostly peaceful, and it serves to divide Republicans on Capitol Hill. I think it's bullshit. My guests this morning, Democratic Senator Bob Menendez of New Jersey, Chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and Republican Senator Kevin Kramer of North Dakota. And joining me for insight and analysis are Mariana Sotomayor of The Washington Post, Jonathan Martin of Politico, Maria Teresa Kumar, President of Voto Latino, and Republican strategist Brendan Buck. Welcome to Sunday. It's Meet the Press. From NBC News in Washington, the longest-running show in television history, this is Meet the Press with Chuck Todd. And a good Sunday morning. It was a week, to borrow a phrase of everything, everywhere, all at once. Global instability and threats to democracy at home. And it ended in the second largest bank collapse in U.S. history. All of it adds to the uncertainty many Americans have been feeling for a few years now. Around the world, Iran and Saudi Arabia agreed to restore ties in the Middle East in a deal brokered not by the United States, but by China. And it happened just as our nation's top intelligence leaders testified that China is, quote, the most consequential threat to U.S. national security. On our southern border, the kidnapping of four U.S. citizens in Mexico and murder of two of them just over our border raised tensions on the charged issue of border security, prompting calls for President Biden to try to crack down on cartels. And there are real questions about whether the Mexican government can be a partner in this. Then there's the threat to democracy here at home. The Republican divide on the Capitol attack broke open again this week after Fox host Tucker Carlson presented an alternative reality of the insurrection, falsely describing it as mostly peaceful chaos. And he ended up showing footage that was provided exclusively to him by the Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy. Republican senators called the broadcast normalizing the attack a mistake, dangerous and disgusting. One even used an expletive. But many House Republicans, they defended the broadcast. But the biggest political story of the year kicked off in Iowa as the co-frontrunners for the Republican nomination took their campaign there for the first time. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis testing his retail campaigning ability on Friday. And Donald Trump holds an event in Davenport, Iowa tomorrow. And guess what? Later in the week, the Manhattan District Attorney's Office uh, has held open a day for Donald Trump to be in front of the grand jury there, where criminal charges for Trump's role in the payment of hush money to porn star Stormy Daniels could be coming any day now. And how will voters and Mr. Trump's opponents respond to a new label, indicted former president, if indeed the Manhattan DA does move forward with those charges? But we're going to turn our attention to the bank failure. Silicon Valley Bank became the second largest bank in U.S. history and the first since the financial crisis in 2008 uh, to fail. The bank is small by comparison to the nation's largest banks. It held just $209 billion in assets compared to more than $3 trillion at J.P. Morgan Chase. 
But its implosion did set off a wave of concern, not just about the banking sector, but about how venture capital firms behave in Silicon Valley, and that sent some stocks tumbling. The Biden administration tried to remain calm about all of this on Friday. When banks experience financial losses, it is and should be a matter of concern. With the reforms of the global financial uh, crisis of 2007-2008, we've put in place stress tests and other tools that our regulators have uh, to provide more resilience to our banking system. Well, joining me now is Sheila Baer, the former chair of the FDIC, which uh, had to take control of Silicon Valley Bank on Friday. And Steve Leisman is CNBC's senior economics reporter. Welcome to both of you. Steve, let me just start with you. What's going to happen tomorrow morning? Well, we're waiting to hear what regulators say, what the Federal Reserve says. Do they uh, do anything? They try to calm market either through a statement or any kind of programs. Uh, we don't know uh, that if that's the case at this point. Uh, it's a big, big question tomorrow morning, Chuck. Two things. One is, does the FDIC announce how much uninsured depositors will get? And that number could be fairly critical, Chuck, as to the kind of confidence that would permeate through the market. If the number is something like 80 cents or 90 cents on the dollar, there might be some calm that would pervade the markets. If it's 50 cents on the dollar, then I think uninsured depositors at other banks are going to be concerned. That's one. The second thing is, does the Federal Reserve work with other agencies to provide anything regarding uh, insurance or some kind of assistance to uh, those who are are sitting on uninsured deposits at other banks? All right, Sheila Baer, you ran the FDIC. What can we expect from them tomorrow morning? So I, I think you can expect what the advanced dividend will be on the uninsured. And I, I want to emphasize that might not be the total recovery on uninsured. That'll be a number that they feel confident they'll be able to recover. Well, they do it as a percentage. The they do it as a percentage. Oh, just right? what he so, was saying? Yes, exactly. Okay. So with IndyMac Bank, which is the closest uh, parallel of, of a failure during the great financial crisis, we announced a 50% dividend. IndyMac, IndyMac Bank was in a lot worse shape than this bank. So I can only assume it's going to be significantly higher. Uh, the fact that they haven't found a buyer yet, is that yeah. what is that what uh, your successor yeah. is doing right now? Well, I, I, I think so. I hope so. I mean, mm-hmm. that, that's the smoothest way to handle these. And almost all of our bank failures during the great financial crisis, we had about 400 of them. We did purchase an assumption. We sold a, a failed bank to a healthy bank. And usually the healthy acquirer would also cover the uninsured because they wanted the franchise value of those large depositors. So optimally, that's the best outcome. The problem is this was a rushed, this was a liquidity failure. It was right. a bank run. So they didn't have time to prepare to market the bank. So they're having to do that now and playing catch up. The fact that it was a bank run, Steve, and in fact, it was venture capitalist Peter Thiel's uh, name who became sort of famous in political circles for getting heavily involved in the 2022 elections. It seemed like he pulled his money out and said, hey, guys, something doesn't look good here. And it started a run. Uh, does that tell you that maybe this is this is something that can be isolated or could this happen at other banks? Chuck, you're asking the question that Wall Street has, uh, I think, 24-7 been debating since this happened. Uh, let, let's let's put the uh, the context here. This is probably the first bank run in the digital age. I don't know if Sheila would confirm that. So that means a tweet can cause a bank run. I don't know that we've had a tweet cause a bank run before, but it's worth uh, remarking that that uh, comments by people like Peter Thiel and others 
caused a massive withdrawal of deposits. So there's four things that are thought to make this bank unique. It had a particular uh, risk on its uh, in its balance sheet when it came to interest rates. It did not seem to move to hedge that risk. Second, it was highly concentrated in the industry so that all of its, uh, most of its depositors and borrowers, by the way, were from the same place. Third, it had a lot of losses on its books, mm-hmm. which, by the way, a bunch of book, a bunch of banks do, but they're unrealized. And the fourth thing was these uninsured deposits. Eighty-seven percent, we're told, of its mm-hmm. deposits were uninsured compared to other banks its size that were around forty percent. So it's isolated, Chuck. But the key thing for tomorrow morning is what do regulators do to give people comfort right. that indeed it was isolated and will remain isolated. I want to put up, a, a Sheila, put up a here and a number of companies that people might be familiar with who had deposits in here who are all need to make some pay, basic payroll runs here. Uh, is the it, Does the FDIC, can they sort of help ease the payroll issue on their own or, or are they going to need right. like an act of Congress or something? Well, uh, no, I think so. They only insure insured deposits. That's what they do. Right. They charge premiums for the insured under 250000 They don't insure uninsured. If there's a systemic risk exception, which suggests there's something very wrong, mm-hmm. then they that's an extraordinary procedure. They arguably could. But I think it's, you know, this is $200 billion bank, a $23 trillion banking industry, $200 billion bank. I think it's going to be hard to say that this is uh, systemic in any way. For the payroll, I think the advanced dividend will help, uh, will help these uh, companies make that. I know some of the names that you, you put up there, that's yeah. not necessarily payroll. I know Circle, those are reserves behind their stable coin. Those, those aren't, that's not their money. Right. They can't use that for payroll. So I think you need to differentiate. No, no doubt. Uh, yeah. But these were all the companies that these, have these some. These are companies that had substantial uninsured yeah. deposits. That's exactly right. Uh, Steve, you're, you, you spend a lot of time watching Jay Powell at the Fed. Um, who, who should be watching out for these banks as they try to, uh, deal with the interest rate hikes here? Is it the Fed's responsibility to warn banks that they need to be smarter about managing the interest rate hikes? Um, or is this on the banks? And was this on Silicon Valley Bank, who was just sort of perhaps not realizing that, hey, these interest rate hikes might be here to stay? So uh, again, a question that a lot of folks are going to be asking tomorrow morning, Chuck. Let me just uh, walk through a little bit of that. Yes, this bank was regulated by the Federal Reserve. Were there enough red flags out there? Certainly some of the postmortems that I'm reading suggest that regulators should have seen this problem in this bank. On the other hand, Chuck, this is still a free market system, despite massive bank regulation that's out there. Banks are free to fail. When you have a change in interest rates like we've had mm-hmm. over the past several several months, the most aggressive rate hike cycle uh, in two generations Some banks' business models are not going to work anymore. Whether or not this bank should have taken steps, I think it should have. It was up to the bank in the first instance, but it's also up to the regulators in the second instance. And that postmortem is going to look at whether or not they, uh, the regulators should have seen this coming. And the next thing you're going to ask about is whether or not the Fed ought to be cutting interest rates. Certainly the market thinks that the Fed will be less aggressive. I I was just going to say, maybe not cut, but possible fallout. Yeah. Slow down the rate of increase, give banks more time. To handle it? Yeah. That's what people are thinking. That's certainly the way the market dramatically repriced yeah. on Thursday and Friday, Chuck. Assuming that. All right. Sheila Bear, Steve Leisman, thank you both. Sheila, I think a lot of people are going to be tapping into your expertise <laughs> this week, unfortunately, I guess. But thank you for coming right. on. Thank you. For it's great me. to see you. Great. Let's turn now to the southern border. Four Americans were abducted and two were killed this week. 
kidnapped just a mile, just a mile across the border from Brownsville, Texas, in Matamoros, Mexico. Four friends from South Carolina traveled to Mexico, where Latavia McGee intended to get cosmetic surgery. In the days that followed, they were moved to at least three different locations, allegedly by members of the Gulf Cartel. Two were dead by the time Mexican security forces located them on Tuesday morning. The Biden administration is already in a bind politically over its immigration policies, caught between Republicans eager to exploit border security failures as a campaign issue and Democrats angry about Biden's new asylum limits and that the administration is considering bringing back family detentions. Do we now also have a national security crisis just over our southern border? So joining me now is the chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He's a member of the Banking Committee, too, by the way. It's Democratic Senator Bob Menendez. Uh, Senator Menendez, let me start with the Banking Committee. I Obviously, I invited you on before all of this happened. Um, have you gotten a briefing over the weekend? And what's your sense of what we can expect tomorrow morning? Uh, well, Chuck, I have not gotten a briefing yet, uh, but I, I think that your previous panel pretty much uh, uh, had it uh, right on. The, the question will be, uh, number one, is what, what are the excesses beyond the insured amounts uh, and uh, the ability to deal with those and the companies in terms of meeting payrolls? Uh, the, the broader question will be, should the regulators right. have been uh, on the ball to ensure that the, this bank could not have had this risk? And what else is out there in this regard? As someone who sat in 2008 in the banking committee when right. we met with that last crisis, uh, the goal is to try to uh, avoid uh, crisis, not to deal with it. And that'll be questions that will be raised. I, just a simple way, are, are you more concerned that maybe regulators underreact or overreact here? Are you more concerned that government underreacts or overreacts? Well, what I'm concerned is that we get it right, right? That doesn't mean over or underreaction is a question of getting it right. Uh, did the regulators uh, get it right? Did they allow this to take place in a way that's to be expected in the market? Or should they have been more forward-leaning in saying to this and other banks, hey, you have risk here, you need to mitigate your risk? Uh, that is something that we'll have to see in the days ahead. Do you think the FDIC should insure more than $250,000 per deposit? Should that ever go up? Well, it's served us well for a long time, and uh, the question is wh where we are in the marketplace today. Does that make sense? Of course, uh, that would require uh, additional insurance proceeds in order to cover it. Uh, that's, that's a question to, to look forward in the future. Uh, but, you know, at the end of the day, depositors know that they're covered up to 250000 mm -hmm. So they can make choices to diversify their deposits as well so that they are less at risk of anything like this. Bottom line, it sounds like you're not ready to offer them a bailout. Oh, I'm not ready to offer them a bailout by any stretch of the imagination. We have right. to see right. exactly everything uh, that, uh, that, that is pertinent to, to the specific set of circumstances and to see what else is out there, if anything else is out there, that we should be thinking about. All right. Let me move to um, uh, the, what happened to those four Americans this week and what it exposed, um, which is the fact that this is a, an administration in Mexico that has chosen a different tact in dealing with the cartels, meaning they don't want to deal with them the way the previous administration did, and they don't seem to want to work with the United States and get our help in dealing with these cartels. How do we deal with this 
when you have a, a Mexican government that may not be on the same page? Well, this is one of our great challenges. Uh, uh, President Lopez Obrador uh, talked about uh, when he took office about kisses, not bullets. Well, that, that's not working too well. The reality is along the border communities, it is the cartels that run the border communities, not the government of Mexico. Mexico has a responsibility, first and foremost, to its own citizens to establish safety and security within its own territory and to those who visit its country as well. And so uh, we need to up dramatically uh, in our engagement with Mexico. It can't be all about economics. It has to be about safety and security as well. And I am afraid that we are headed in the wrong direction in Mexico on that and on democracy questions as well. So uh, this is a, a, a present danger that we have to deal with, and we have to engage the Mexicans in a way that says you've got to do a lot more in your security. We can help them. Yeah. Uh, we have intelligence. We have other information we can share, but we need them to enforce uh, in their own country. Do you think designating the cartels as a foreign terrorist organization helps or hurts that ability to work with the Mexican government? Well, slapping a designation is in and of itself going to change anything. Uh, the question is, uh, how do you go after the cartels? How do you dry up their money? How do you go after their leadership? Uh, how do you put them away? Uh, how do you deny visas for Mexican government officials who ultimately are, are not engaging in the active prosecution of the cartels? Those are some of the things that you can do that ultimately mean something mm-hmm. at the end of the day. How would you vote uh, on this? It may come to a vote. Would you vote to designate these cartels terrorist organizations? Well, that has a a certain designation. We've saved that for truly terrorist organizations in the world. Uh, Certainly, they are uh, consequential uh, to questions of national security. I'm more interested in doing something uh, that ultimately uh, uh, seeks to destroy the cartels than to just name them. You know, you name them a foreign terrorist organization, that in and of itself means nothing. Uh, You ultimately go after their leadership, you jail them, you ultimately go after their money, you dry it up, you ultimately go after those who are supposed to be enforcing the law, and now you have a real consequence. Um, You have uh, been critical of the new changes in border policy that Secretary Mayorkas has done at DHS. Um, What's the alternative, and do you have, and what's your level of confidence in Secretary Mayorkas? Well, look, this is not about Secretary Mayorkas; it's about the administration. Uh, The best part of the administration's uh, immigration policy over the first two years is that they ended family detention. Uh, which proved to be a failure under both the Obama and Trump administrations as a way to deter uh, individuals from coming. Uh, What we need is a comprehensive plan to deal with the border and what are the elements, the push and pull factors that bring people to this country. We need to have a surge at the border that deals with asylum officers, uses, uh, border security that ultimately can, can process those who have a legitimate claim for asylum and to deport those who have no legitimate 
claim for asylum. We need to find legal pathways so that people don't surge to the border because they are fleeing. Because if my situation is uh, I am in a country where uh, saying means I will most certainly die, see my daughter raped or my son forced into a gang, I'm going to flee. Well, we need to understand that and deal with it. We need to work with Central American and the Mexican government uh, to also be part of the solution. Um, and lastly, uh, we need to look at uh, uh, the, the question of uh, temporary protective status in a way uh, that ultimately helps us meet the challenges. Um, yeah. The three biggest countries, by the way, uh, Chuck, that are coming to the border now are Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua. They are dictatorships, people fleeing those dictatorships. Uh, when the administration opened up a legal pathway for those fleeing, it dramatically saw the yeah. reduction. It's just an example of what you can do in a way that both is good for the border and preserves right. our nation as a nation that preserves uh, asylum. But if not, if the administration does go down this path, I am afraid that the president will become the asylum denier-in-chief. Well, Senator Menendez, Democrat from New Jersey, chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee, as I said, boy, we had a week, uh, and so did you, with all the, the different things that are on your plate uh, and your responsibilities. I uh, appreciate the time. Uh, thanks for sharing your perspective. Thank you. When we come back, Donald Trump is facing the possibility of running for president while being charged with multiple crimes. Will it even matter? Is there a GOP alternative? Republican Senator Kevin Kramer of North Dakota, who is also a member of the Banking Committee, Joins me next. Join Hoda Kotb for a brand new season of her podcast, Making Space. For season five, I am making space to talk to people who are providing a sense of hope and inspiration when life changes course. Uplifting conversations with inspiring individuals like NFL legend Drew Brees, singer-songwriter Ziggy Marley, and today's show co-anchor Savannah Guthrie as you have never heard her before. I found faith more viscerally, not because the bad thing didn't happen, but because it did. I promise you, like me, will leave these conversations with some wisdom for your own journey, empowered and inspired to make space in your own life. New episodes of Making Space with Hoda Kotb are released every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Primary season is here. If you've got voting questions, we've got voting answers. Visit NBCNews.com slash plan your vote. You'll find when and how to vote in your state's primary election. Visit NBCNews.com slash plan your vote today. Welcome back. Two divides played out in the Republican Party this week on Capitol Hill. Senate and House Republicans split on the Fox Corporation's attempt to rewrite the history of the Capitol insurrection with Senate Republicans led by Mitch McConnell criticizing Tucker Carlson for falsely portraying the attack as peaceful. Many House Republicans, though, defended the broadcast, calling it a must watch. I don't take any part in whitewashing January 6th. It wasn't a stroll through the Capitol. It's awful what some people are willing to do to get some eyeballs and get a little extra money. I think it's bull****. Then there's the 2024 divide emerging in Iowa, where the frontrunners for the Republican nomination are kicking off their campaigns. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who's not an official candidate yet, held two events on Friday. And Donald Trump, with the pressure of a possible indictment looming in New York, perhaps as early as this month, appears there tomorrow night. Our country has become the investigation capital of the world. Actually, that's all we do. The one thing I could say, if you talk to Floridians, uh, there's no drama in our administration. There's no palace intrigue. They basically just sit back and say, OK, what's the governor going to do next? And we roll out and we execute. 
Well, joining me now is Republican Senator Kevin Kramer of North Dakota. And as I said, also a member of the Senate Banking Committee. Senator Kramer, welcome back to Meet the Press. Great to be with you. Thank you. And as I said to Senator Menendez, uh, we booked you before this banking, <laughs> uh, this collapse, but uh, with our good fortune yeah. that you're on the Banking Committee. So let me ask you this. What have you learned over the last 48 hours? What do you expect to happen tomorrow morning? Yeah, well, first of all, when you hear from Steve Leisman, you almost don't need to ask anybody else because he really he really is the guy that the, the, in the know and, and the smart thinker and all of these things. So I'd probably call him for advice. I, I actually think he covered it very well. I, I, my sense of it, Chuck, is my sense is it is a fairly localized issue. The problem is, is that we live in a very emotional time where markets are emotional. The reference to, you know, to, to um, social media as being an accelerator, if you will, of, of some of that emotion. Um, I, I think is is can be problematic, but I hope that with the weekend came some calm and certainly some strategy as well. But yeah. there are so many unique things about uh, Silicon Valley that that aren't necessarily applicable systemically. So my hope is it's very localized and we can address it in that way. Uh, do you at all? You know, in 2018, you remember the House. You you uh, were oh, yeah. a co-sponsor of a of a repeal of part of Dodd Frank. Um, that mm-hmm. loosened some regulations on smaller banks. There are some that are pointing to that loosening, saying maybe that would have, um, that was something that perhaps would have prevented Silicon Valley Bank from putting themselves in this position. Do you think these smaller banks need more regulation or less? Yeah, I don't, they certainly don't need any more regulation. That doesn't mean that you can, you can be mismanaged. Now, we have to throw in the obvious, and, and I think you talked about it in the first segment, and that is the fact that we have seen a rather sharp increase in, increase in interest rates, which have put some smaller mm-hmm. banks, uh, you know, at, at odds with their own balance sheet. Now, of course, we have a Federal Reserve trying to change its balance sheet at the same time. Um, and, and perhaps we need to do a little more, um, review of all, of all right. of that. But I, I don't think smaller banks need more, uh, oversight and more regulation, maybe better oversight, but certainly not more regulation. With all this volatility right now, uh, is this yeah. the time to have a debt ceiling fight? Yeah, no, it's a great point. Um, we we are living in a, a you know pretty much a, a a debt crisis right now, and it's not just about the America's the government's debt ceiling, but many individuals have hit their own debt ceiling, and and uh, their savings accounts are being drained, and so we ha- we have kind of a a crisis, if you will, on our hands that that requires lots of things. We don't need to have a fight on debt ceiling, but this is why I think it's foolish for the president to simply say I'm not going to negotiate on the debt ceiling. This is the time to have a negotiation. Is it though? And, and do something in a I mean, isn't it better to just have a debate about the debt ceiling? Don't mess with the economy right now. And then you actually have a budget debate, put out a budget and have two budgets and and actually do it the old fashioned way, not use the debt ceiling. Well, the problem with the old fashioned way is that it has eluded us now for for a a decade. I've been in Congress over a decade and I've never seen the old fashioned way. We've never had a uh, a regular order, as they call it. So I agree with you. We need to get back to that. But I think the debt ceiling situation is one of the opportunities to demand that maybe all get together and and uh, and work work with one another. Let me t- uh, turn to a couple of political issues. Um, do you think the former president, you were an early supporter of the former president. You haven't endorsed him yet for 2024. You've said you'd like to see somebody like him uh, and you haven't ruled out endorsing him. But if he is indicted, regardless of whether it's Manhattan or Atlanta or in Washington, you think it's healthy for the party if he keeps running or do you think he should step aside? <laughs> Sure. Well, first of all, Donald Trump's not going to take advice from the party or from me, but um, 
I think what will happen is if he's indicted, that becomes one of the factors in whether he wins primaries or not. Uh, the other factor is who else is in the race and who can make the best case. Obviously, you've highlighted Governor DeSantis, who has certainly earned the right to be at the head of the class through uh, not just through his, his political rhetoric, but through his successful governing of, mm -hmm. of a very large state. And I think, you know, seeing him out on the stump a little more now, get doing the things that potential presidential candidates do, I think will help that debate along. The, the challenge becomes if there are too many people in the race, then there mm -hmm. are other good ones. Mike Pence, Mike Pompeo, certainly. Uh, my friend Tim Scott uh, would all be good candidates who understand the Trump doctrine, but um, have a demeanor that's probably more suitable to the, to the swing voter. And th at the end of the day, what's most important for primary voters to think about is not just who they love uh, the most, but who can win for the country and who can win for the party, because we're in desperate need need of, of some new leadership. So you think electability should matter a little bit more than it usually does? Well, I think it should always matter for for a primary voters. Certainly, there, there's no there's no glory in losing spectacularly compared to winning humbly. So I'd I'd rather see I'd rather see a, a humble victory. All right, I got to ask you about January sixth because there were just two different reactions sure. to what we saw this week. Tucker Carlson said on his air about January 6th, that a small percentage of them were hooligans, they committed vandalism, but the overwhelming majority weren't. They were peaceful. They were orderly and meek. These were not insurrectionists. They were sightseers. And then Vice President Mike Pence last night to the Gridiron Dinner said this, make no mistake about it. What happened that day was a disgrace, and it mocks decency to portray it any other way. Where do you come down, on Tucker Carlson's side or on Mike Pence's side? Well, first of all, both sides can be right rhetorically, but the problem is, is you know, a, a, a four-hour stroll through the Capitol that's uh, marred by a half hour of rioting doesn't make it a peaceful protest. And nobody was supposed to be in the Capitol, so there's not a single person who's completely innocent of uh, of wrongdoing. But not everybody that day uh, is at the same level of, of crime. 518, by the way, have confessed mm -hmm. to committing crimes that day. 420 have been prosecuted and sentenced. So clearly it wasn't a peaceful protest. That's not to say that the vast majority of them uh, don't have regret or they, they didn't understand the severity of what they were doing or the severity of what some other people are doing. I do think it's unfair to put them all in the same bucket. I've never felt like um, a democracy is actually in, in trouble. We survived a civil war. Uh, we we're going to survive this as well. What frustrates me as much as anything, Chuck, is that we're talking about it again. Here we had the January 6th commission wrap up yeah. its work mostly people not caring or, or paying any attention. It was very partisan, um, to, to say the least. And here we were moving forward. We should be talking about the southern border, as you were discussing right. earlier. We should be talking about China and the challenge it possesses and, and talking about inflation and a budget that drives up deficits forever. And those are those are winning arguments for Republicans, not relitigating January 6, 2020 uh, or 2021. You're a regular guest on Fox News. You've seen all this internal communications. Has it given you pause? Uh, about uh, how they conduct themselves with you? Well, first of all, I don't confuse my job with anybody at Fox News, at least of all uh, the entertainers in prime time. Uh, that's not to say they don't add some value. I don't confuse Tucker Carlson with Brett Baer or Dana Perino or Bill Hammer uh, any more than I c confuse some of the MSNBC personalities with, with what you do on mm -hmm. Sunday mornings. I just think that there's just way too much entertainment out there. What I do regret probably as much as anything about the release of the of the 41,000 hours is that it was released to one person in yeah. prime time who is 
you know, rather sensational in his approach and rather than just releasing it to everybody. I, I think transparency absolutely is the yeah. is the best way to go. I think Kevin McCarthy's right to do it. I just wish he would have released it to everybody at the same time. Yeah, neutral transparency. If you really wanted it, that's how you would there have you done it. Uh, Senator Kramer, Republican from North Dakota, really appreciate you coming on and sharing your perspective with us. It's always uh, it's always good. always my pleasure. Thank you, sir. Thank you. When we come back, Donald Trump's biggest rival is meeting with voters in Iowa. Can he steal the spotlight from Trump? You can't just say let it go, because then we're going to be living under an oppressive wokeocracy, and we can't that happen. Panel is next. Welcome back, panelists here. Mariana Sotomayor, congressional reporter for The Washington Post. Jonathan Martin, senior political columnist for Politico. Brendan Buck, former advisor to House Speakers Ryan and Boehner. And Maria Teresa Kumar, the president of Voto Latino. Look, I want to get into Iowa and the presidential stuff. However, uh, I want to start very quickly with banking crisis. Maria Teresa, you were just saying you were surprised you haven't seen Powell Powell yelling out more forcefully already. Jay well, Powell, I, the Federal Reserve Chair. If you actually you look at which bank this is, this is the Silicon Valley Bank. This is the startup bank. This is also oftentimes the Democratic ATM bank of all those investors. And so the fact that you don't have these individuals, the investors that invest in the yeah. people. So the fact that you don't have someone actually talking from the administration and being so forceful, I do think that we're, what we're going to see are Republicans saying, oh, you shouldn't bail this one out. Mm. And it's going to be, I think, very much on, along political lines. What have you heard, Mariana? Like, if they've already been like, how, where, where's, you know, are people wondering why the administration isn't? Because they've been, and I get it, the other argument is, hey, don't, you don't want to come out too forcefully because it might create a new panic. Right. A lot of, especially House lawmakers that I know have been briefed on this, but they're still kind of trying to get together all the facts. What should we do? How should we position ourselves? And I think leaders are just also starting to get online about this. Mm -hmm. There hasn't been any being concrete yet as to even reactions, really, from a number of lawmakers, which is significant, right? I think they are not only just trying to understand what to say, but the issue at hand. I, I think they're all just hoping that a big bank takes this bank over and takes all of this off of their hands, because I know nobody wants to vote for a bailout. Let me turn to <laughs> politics. We got a Des Moines Register poll, and there, what was interesting to me, Jonathan, was how everybody looked at it through the prism of what they want to have happen, right? So you look at, like, Trump's numbers here. You can look at it one way and say, hey, Trump doesn't look as strong as he used to. In June 2021, his definitely probably number was a lot bigger than it is now. Um, But when you look at his net favorable rating, you sit there and say, oh, look, it's dropped from September 21. It's in Iowa. It's uh, down from plus 84 to plus 62. And then when you put it in a ranking with the other candidates that were tested in this Des Moines Register poll, Trump is plus 62 just below DeSantis. Those aren't weak numbers to me. They're just not as strong as they used to be. Trump doesn't look weak, does he? No, he's somebody who would win out there, but he wouldn't win by 30. He'd win by 15 (laughs) in a divided race. And that's the key, of course, right? The the numbers that weren't tested in that poll, I think all of us want to see is, what's the head-to-head Trump Mm -hmm. versus DeSantis, especially if it's just those two or at least you know a group of four or five? I think that's going to be the more revealing number. You know, for a race that seems to revolve around Donald Trump, I actually think the next six months are going to be more about the Santas. And mm-hmm. here's why. I think if he can prove his mettle, and it's clear that he is the alternative to Trump, for now, we're, we're going to know that. And I think if that's the case, this race gets a lot more clear. It's yeah. more of a head-to-head race. If he's not that clear alternative, if he can't take a punch yeah. and throw a punch in a Republican primary, not against the left, not yeah. against the media, but in his own party, then it's going to be a more complicated race. Brendan, you're nodding. 
Yeah, I mean, look, Ron DeSantis is clearly the alternative, and, and the, the argument for anybody other than Ron DeSantis is pretty thin at this point. But he is, he, he, is, he is very untested. Yeah. And there is something that I think every successful candidate for the presidency in recent years has had something. It's called charisma. And we don't know if Ron DeSantis is able to connect with people yet. He obviously is able to animate the Republican base. No. But when you're running for president, you're under that spotlight. People want to see whether you have the emotional appeal. Joe Biden, Barack Obama, George right. W. Bush, Bill Clinton, everybody had it. And it's unclear if he does. And when Donald Trump comes swinging at you, you're going to have to respond. It, it is. I, I hate to bring that up. He doesn't pass the beer test. DeSantis, right? He just does it, right? The, you know, George W. Bush, you know, and people used to make fun of that, but that, to some people, that matters. Absolutely. Well, and it's also about likability, I think, one of the reasons, and that's what we're getting at. But, you know, oftentimes people say that DeSantis is a strong opponent to the Democrats because he is where woke goes to die. Mm -hmm. And the challenge that he doesn't realize is that woke is what got Americans ACA. Mm -hmm. Woke is what basically wants to make sure that people have that have gang marriage. Woke mm -hmm. is what gives women agency over their bodies. Woke is making sure that a child is in their classroom. It's not a fearful that they're going to lose their life. And that is actually a juxtaposed to what the majority of Americans actually want. Sounds like you think Democrats should retake woke, should fight for it. Rather than than sort of ignore the attacks. Right. I mean, corporations actually want woke, right? They don't want a DeSantis regulating what they can and cannot say. Look at what's happening with Disney mm -hmm. right now. And this is an opportunity for them not only to reclaim it, but to recognize that it is actually their strength. It is what got Joe Biden to the White House because it animated not just women, but it, mm -hmm. it animated a whole generation of young people. This woke issue, Mariana, yeah. it's the only thing that keeps Republicans united, whatever it means. Oh, yeah, exactly. I mean, you ask them, what does woke mean? And they really can't give you a firm answer right. just because what does woke mm -hmm. mean, right? And I think the interesting thing about DeSantis, too, is, yes, he's been able to do all of these things in Florida. But the closest lesson we have is the midterms, where we saw in Michigan, in Pennsylvania, key swing states, a lot of Republicans or Republicans who went independent or even moderate Republicans saying, I don't want Trump. I don't want someone who's acting like Trump. I just completely reject this extremism, which, to your point, Democrats are totally looking I, forward to have that debate and frame both of them. Well, that's the question. I don't know if DeSantis is going to be talking to swing voters. Here's like one of the things he said in Vegas yesterday. Take a listen to this. We're also the first state in the country to establish every November 10th, the day in our schools is earmarked, to teach our students at all grade levels about the evils of communist regimes throughout history. We're going to tell the truth about Marxism and Leninism. Miami. It, it, you know, Jonathan, it, it's sort of like, look, at being a Floridian, I sort of know what, what he's, <laughs> trying, to, what he's yeah. trying to play there yeah. and all of that. But I would tell him, I went to Florida public schools, yeah. you know, we, we were taught this, it was called history. Right. It just seems like a weird politicizing, you know, he's going out of his way to politicize something. But Chuck, you said it, right? Donald Trump is to Democrats what wokeism is to the GOP. It is the singular, cohesive, unifying right force, okay? The backlash to the perceived excess of the left, which is basically what wokeism is, okay, is what galvanizes the GOP right now. It's not any policy agenda. It's yeah. that. So, of course, he's playing into that. Here's something that I've noticed talking to voters and donors alike about the Santos, which is going to help him. They want him to be the guy. They're almost grading him on a curve because they so mm. want this to work. They almost want to will this to be the yeah. real deal against Trump. And that helps him because even if he goes to Iowa right. and he's not great on the rope line, they still want it to it, happen. You know, right? Brendan, I am curious. You know, there was a cocoon of protectors around Obama when Hillary yeah. Clinton attacked him in 08. 
Yes. Will there be a cocoon of protectors of DeSantis if Trump comes after him? And Jonathan and I were talking about this earlier. Yeah. He is the one person when Donald Trump swings at him that people are like, whoa, 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 whoa. It's like, different. If, yeah. he hit, if he hits Mitch McConnell or if they he hits Nikki Haley, yeah. that's pretty funny. But if you hit Ron DeSantis, it's like, well, we don't hit other Republicans. It's like, since when? But yeah. that, that, that speaks to something that people, like Jonathan said, people are rooting for him. Whether that is a ultimately a good thing or, or a bad right. thing for him is, is an issue. And real fast, w- that, watch yeah. for a group of hardliners in the House to come out for DeSantis and give him some insulation on the right to protect against Trump. I would say I would say that the only Republican voter that really matters on DeSantis and Trump is Rupert Murdoch. And you actually see Fox News pivoting to DeSantis. They've they've tried it before. (laughs) (laughs) We'll see if they can pull it off. Up next, what's the over under? Well, as March Madness approaches, we're going to look at how much money is at stake for the growing sports betting market in this country and just how it's now starting to become a real funding source for state governments. Welcome back. Data download time. Today is not just any Sunday. It is Selection Sunday when the NCAA names the 68 teams that's going to play in the upcoming college basketball tournament. But what you may not realize these days is when you throw a couple of bucks into your office March Madness bracket pool, you're contributing to what has now become a multi-billion dollar industry, thanks in part to the growing number of states that have made sports betting legal. It has been transformational over the last few years. Already, just in the just on this NCAA tournament, the expectation is $10 billion is going to be wagered just on March Madness. 52% of folks will be making some form of an online wager now. And by the way, for the first time, it looks like this year, legal revenue from gambling, $6 billion, is going to outnumber the illegal revenue from gambling. Why? Because since 2018, when the Supreme Court said states could have sports gambling, 36 states have legalized it already. And it is all over the country. It is red. It is blue, if you look at it. There's been no political trend, if you will. The states that don't have legalized betting yet, just about all of them uh, are going to try to get it. Maybe Utah and Hawaii might be the only two states over the next decade that don't actually make a serious attempt at it. And if you want to look at how states have already benefited, check this out. For the first time in 2022, state tax revenue from sports uh, gambling Cross the billion dollar threshold. Now, the real question for state lawmakers is this going to be revenue that they add to improve schools and roads, or is it revenue that they use to replace in order to replace revenue and it doesn't really help the state in the long run? We'll find out. And sports gambling uh, has led to gambling on other issues. The Oscars can actually be something you bet on in a smaller number of states. Six of them allow it uh, for tonight Colorado, Louisiana, Indiana, Michigan, New Jersey. And Massachusetts. So if you have a favorite actor, you can throw a couple bucks on them as well. And speaking of Hollywood, politics in Hollywood have often been intertwined. Donald Trump is just the latest celebrity to leverage the power of his fame to launch a successful political career. Well, in 2004, during his first appearance on Meet the Press as governor of California, Arnold Schwarzenegger talked about how his experience as an actor helped him sell his policies as governor. Ronald Reagan said that you can't be a good president without being a good actor. Do you believe that your background and training as an actor has helped you as governor in Sacramento? I think one of the things in acting that you learn is is how to sell, how to promote things. And because you go always on those promotion tours and you try to sell tickets for your movies and all those things. So I think it is the same thing. In order for you to get any kind of a program going in your state or in your country, you have to go out and you have to communicate with the people. The better you can communicate with the people, 
the more that you can let them know of what you're trying to accomplish in the state, the more you can connect with the people, the better it is and the more they will vote for your program. When we come back, President Biden's new immigration policy is dividing Democrats. But are his new rules working? Welcome back. Uh, this week, Mariana, the we have this border debate about immigration. And then Americans get killed literally a mile over the border. And it's one of those things. You know, I had talked with a senior national security official about a few weeks ago who said, you know, northern Mexico is perhaps the most one of the most dangerous places on the globe right now. No different than a Syria uh, that you have. And that there is parts of Mexico that are not governed by the Mexican government. What do we do yeah. as America? I mean, that is the question. And I'll be honest, I haven't heard Republicans or Democrats necessarily on Capitol Hill talk about this specific issue. Mm-hmm. And a big reason why, I mean, honestly, any House Democrat, House Republican, Senate, they will say that just tackling the border and immigration generally is probably the most politically toxic issue for each party. Nobody wants it. Nobody they? wants it. And you do have this new generation of Latino Republicans who genuinely want to do something, who are calling out their party and saying, I'm living this every day. I represent the border. We need to do something about this. But people, I mean, we've all lived through immigration attempts, how they've gotten so close. And obviously this is a different scenario, but I don't necessarily think it's going to add that much pressure on Congress to act and do something and, about and it's, it. And it's a separate issue, but it is linked, Maria Teresa. Well, this is what's wild. If you can believe it, I think we sat at this table almost 10 years, 10 years ago sure. when we were talking about the Gang of Eight. It is the <laughs> 10-year anniversary of this, this domestic policy issue of what to do with the 11 million people here who are undocumented. And we allowed it to be conflated with what's happening in the southern border. And it's time for the administration to recognize that we have two issues. We have that 11 million undocumented who are mar- who are married and who live in mixed status households who will vote on mm-hmm. this issue. But then you also have what's happening at the border, which is a Western hemispheric issue. Yeah. It is some time for us to actually start paying attention to Latin America. It's been almost 25 years that we haven't, but you know who's paying attention to Latin America? Russia and China. Yeah. Yeah. Russia has invested and has military in Nicaragua right now. We have, we have China who's actually invested Belt close to half a yeah. billion dollars in infrastructure in Central America. And so the more that we look over the Atlantic on what's happening over in Ukraine, we actually say, what is our domestic policy and international democracy building here at home? You know, and the other complicating factor, Brendan, is that even if you want to get tough on the cartels, if the Mexican government doesn't want to get tough on the cartels, there's not much you can do. And it really, I think, does. I think this is why, as Mariana said, there's been almost not much said because you, you could do the finger pointing game. The real problem is AMLA. Yeah, it, it's a it's a political problem. It's also a real policy problem that's not easy to solve. And I, I think you make a great point. We've we've long sort of held off on seriously addressing either one of these issues for hoping there would be some kind of grand bargain. I think we need to realize the grand bargain is not in the offing anytime soon. And so you do need to address the border. And I think Democrats candidly have been a little behind the curve on this politically for a long time. This is an issue that absolutely sets independents on fire. We know it sets Republicans on fire. And they just seem to have a blind spot. The border is a serious issue. It's only getting worse. And I think Joe Biden is probably recognizing it now, but the problem is so bad, it may not not be easy to solve. Well, they've had, so... By the way, Bob Menendez called him the... uh, That was a tough... That was was tough. What did you think of that? That was tough because he was basically dangling... Asylum denier in chief. Because he was dangling what the the left had said to Obama, that he Mm -hmm. was... That what Obama was... 
a deporter in chief. So right. that was not a Obama small. Obama won re-election. He won re-election. But I think to what you're saying. I mean, isn't is that it, the? Is no, it, that, that's, yeah. yeah no, but but I do think that the administration recognizes the vulnerability of Latin America. It's one of the reasons why you know Kamala, the vice president, has invested close to three point yeah. five billion dollars. But the most important part is we have to divorce these two issues because. There, what we're finding in our polling is that among young Latinos who are 35% right. of the voter base, yeah. it's a top three issue immigration is for them. The immigration. Because it's it, their and, parents. And they've separated from the border. Right, issue, absolutely. Right? It's a different thing. But really the, quick. the Senate tomorrow, you could probably find 60 plus votes for a fairly comprehensive bill addressing immigration if you had some compromise in both, right? You can find a gang, send them on us to do it. The problem is Kevin McCarthy yep. is never going to bring up any immigration up. compromise bill because effectively he'd be turning over his speakership. And, but we all know what would happen in Republican primaries. So he's, there is there is something there. But we're going to pause it there. Before we go, uh, my colleague Lester Holt is going to be sitting down with the new prime minister of the UK, Rishi Sunak. It's his first American Network interview Get to know the new British Prime Minister by tuning in Monday on Nightly News with Lester Holt. That's all for today. Thanks for watching. We'll be back next week because if it's Sunday, it's Meet the Press.